0: Thank you for the joy of being with you this morning. I had the privilege of um, being with the mission team last night and was able to thank them and you for supporting Karen and me for so many years. And it's not just financial support, it's just the prayers, the encouragement. We really do feel loved by you. Thank you. And... Um, As Paul writes to the church at Philippi and thanks them for their partnership in the gospel, we thank God for you. I want to mention briefly our book table in the back of the room. It has books, CDs, and booklets on it. And uh, I, I mention it now because I don't want to mention it at the end, but not because it's most important to me. But do want to encourage you to make use of these resources, and I want to tell you of some of them focused on the gospel missions and evangelism. Uh, that is the passion of our hearts. So in our booklets, our president, uh, Craig Perrow, wrote this booklet on Barnabas, A Lasting Legacy, Investing Our Lives in People, Marnie Carlson on our staff wrote this booklet, The Harvest is Ripe, Sharing the Father's Heart for Lost People. This will encourage you and challenge you. And then about Marnie again, her father left her mom and abandoned the family just when she was beginning high school. She struggled so with anger for her father for many years, but God gave her the grace not only to forgive her father... And but to continue to share the gospel with him. And uh, he just died uh, uh, within a couple of months ago. I saw Marnie just a few days ago, and she said God did bring her father to Christ before he died. But not too long ago, she had written this letter to her father, The Way to Heaven. And if you're looking for a tool to put into someone's hands, Share the Gospel. It's the warmest, clearest presentation I've seen. So take a look at that. Some other resources that are so valuable, uh, this biography of Adoniram Judson to the Golden Shore. Adoniram Judson was actually the first missionary to go out from America. He thought he was going to India, ended up in Burma. And they're still using his translation of the New Testament there. We have much work in Burma. And, uh, but this is the most wonderful missionary biography I've ever read. If you want to encourage your children and your grandchildren in missions, this is a good book to get them into. And I will tell you, his first wife, Nancy, is the hero of the book, Strong, Godly Woman. Operation World is a prayer tool for the nations. If you do not have this in your home, you need it. You can look up any country in the world and understand what is the state of the church, what is the need of the believers there, and how to pray intelligently for those people. So use this as a tool to disciple your children and your grandchildren in both prayer and missions. And about the book table, there are CDs of our Bible conferences we present in the middle, and the booklets. It's all available on an offering basis, so no one's going to be back there selling stuff to you. There are suggested prices. Put in what you can, take what you would like, and God bless you. And then turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We are walking through this great letter of the Apostle Paul to his beloved brothers and sisters in Philippi today, and uh, we covered chapter 1 basically in our first session this morning, but uh, I want to begin chapter 2, but keep it in context. So go back with me to uh, verse 27 in chapter 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So we're going to look at in this time what that looks like for us to stand firm side by side, sharing one mind and heart for the gospel. And how does God get us to that place? So begin with me in chapter 2 and verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, we read that verse and something touches our hearts deeply. We know that these are the very things we long for in our fellowship of believers, how we need encouragement and comfort and fellowship and affection and compassion. Paul says, if that's what you desire, you need to know that it flows out of this. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So Paul says if you desire those beautiful expressions of love and attitudes in verse 1, you need to understand that first you need to share a common mindset, a common commitment. Your lives need to be tied intimately into one another's. You all need to be moving in the same direction. And then he says it also flows out of this in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul says that the very heart of this is how you see yourselves and how you see one another. And he calls us here to look at one another as more important than we are. Or you might remember how he tells the church at Rome, in honor, prefer one another. Or the Apostle John calls us to lay down our lives for each other. And what is impossible in the system in which we live becomes normal in the body of Christ. It is normal to look at a brother or sister as more important than we are. It is normal to prefer each other. It is normal to lay down our lives for each other. Anything outside of that is abnormal. As he continues, he says, of course what we're talking about is an attitude of heart. It's the very attitude of the Lord Jesus himself. Verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he is in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the very form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. Jesus was the second man to enter time full. Adam was everything God created to be, but he chose to be emptied out of selfishness and pride. As Adam and Eve declared their independence from God, their life was consumed in death in their rebellion. Well, everyone since Adam has inherited his sin, his death, his emptiness. We come into this world empty people, and we spend our lives grasping to be filled. Whatever we think will fill that gnawing emptiness inside, whether it's experiences or money or success or things or pleasure, whatever we think will fill us up, we stuff it into ourselves and We come into this world empty. We spend our lives grasping to be filled. But Jesus came filled and chose to be emptied. Verse 8, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus could have fulfilled the Father's command to come as a man by coming as a ruling monarch, Jesus didn't come as any person, did he? He came as the lowest form of person, a servant. He could have fulfilled the Father's command to give his life by dying a hero's death. He didn't die any death. He died the lowest form of death, the death of a common criminal. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of Jesus' willingness to take the lowest place, die the lowest death, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name. And someday... Every knee will bow before him. All of God's angels, every person who has ever lived, even Satan and all of his hosts, will fall before Jesus and recognize his lordship. And Paul is answering one of the biggest questions in our Bibles in this text Who will own the worship of the nations? I'd like you to turn back with me to a couple of scriptures that you know very well. First of all, Genesis chapter 11. We have seen human depravity in the condition of men and women before the flood. So eloquently spoken by God himself, every thought and intention of their heart was only evil continually. God chose Noah. Noah. Saved him through the flood. And just a few chapters later, here is human depravity again. This time dressed up a little bit, but the same depth, ugliness of sin. Verse 1 in Genesis chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, "'Come, let us make bricks, and burn them thoroughly.'" They had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, "'Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower, with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth.'" And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which, with, uh, which the children of men had built." And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And so God dispersed them and confused their languages. Human depravity, not as ugly as revealed in chapter 6, but oh, the, let's worship what comes from us, what we make. Let's make a name for ourselves this passion to worship ourselves and what comes from us. And then turn to the book of Daniel and chapter 3. Daniel to the right of Psalms in the prophetic books right after Ezekiel. Daniel chapter 3, you know the story very, very well. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. So this image is 90 feet tall. Image of gold. It's huge. He set it up on the plain of Dur in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar said to his officials to gather the people and uh, to worship this image as they're about to dedicate it. And uh, so in verse 4, the herald proclaimed, You're commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, when you hear the sound of the instruments, to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Now we can spend time talking about parallels to our culture what idols have we created that we worship? What images has our system set before us that they're calling us to worship? But the first reality, this is Babel. This is the, the plain of Shinar, Dura. It's the same place as Genesis chapter 11. And we see the same human heart. This desire to worship who we are, what comes from us, and what we build. Well, as you know, there were some uh, slaves from Judah living in Babylon in the captivity. Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And of course, they had committed themselves to worship only the one true God, They had some political enemies. Those enemies saw this as an opportunity to deal with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So pick it up with me at um, verse 8. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to the king, O king, live forever. And then they talk about when the music is played, there are these brothers that do not fall down and worship these certain Jews. They pay no attention to you, O king. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage. And as we walk through this, I want you to know the progression of what's going on in the heart of this king, Nebuchadnezzar. He's in furious rage. He commands Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be brought before him. Is it true that you don't fall down and worship the image that I've made? And, um, uh, well, let's pick it up uh, in verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you are ready, you can just hear the king saying, we're going to give you one more chance to save your lives. Have you had enough pressure yet, enough threats? If you're ready now, uh, when you hear the sound of the instruments, to fall down and worship the image that I've made well and good, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." And look at this question he asks. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Uh, He will get the answer to his question before the story is completed. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now visualize the scene. These three exiles from Judah standing before the most powerful man in the most powerful kingdom of the world. He's threatening them with their lives. And they say, we have no need to even answer you in this matter. Hmm. Verse uh, 17, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from your burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. So angry, his facial expressions were contorted. The expression of his face was changed. And you know the rest of the story. He has the furnace heated seven times hotter than normal. It was so hot that the soldiers who flew th- through the three brothers into the furnace were consumed in the flames. And then Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace. Wait a minute. Now he's astonished. Didn't we throw three men into the furnace? Why do- they were tied up? Why do we see four men walking in the furnace? And the fourth is like a son of the gods. There was the living God, the pre-incarnate Christ, walking in that furnace with these three brothers. Well, he goes from being astonished to worship. Look at the beginning of chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. He had built a very high image of gold, but now he's met the Most High God. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to to generation who will own the worship of the nations turn to chapter 7 careful about time this morning which which i'm sure you're grateful for but uh, we can't be in this neighborhood without looking at this amazing text daniel chapter 7 this is in daniel's visions and dreams look at verse 9 As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And then look down to verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I'll never forget listening to a radio program in Chicago on my way home from a meeting one evening. Uh, it's a program on the largest station in Chicago, and it's hosted by a brilliant professor of social psychology At the University of Chicago, a Jewish fellow. This particular night, his guests were uh, a liberal Protestant theologian and a Catholic priest, and they delighted in talking about how Jesus never claimed to be God. In fact, his favorite reference to himself was "Son of Man." He so identified with his humanity that's how he wanted to be known. Not as God, Son of Man. When Jesus in the Gospels, in front of the religious leaders and the Pharisees, referred to himself as the Son of Man, do you think this is what those religious leaders were thinking? Oh, Jesus wants to be identified with his humanity. Of course not. They knew that he was claiming to be the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. This is the Son of Man. This is the one who will own the worship of the nations forever and ever. Let's go back to Philippians chapter 2. Who will own the worship of the nations? Every knee will bow before him. I'll never forget when we brought our son Peter to university and um, helped him unpack. It was a very emotional time. Peter struggled in some ways along the preparation for university. I went back maybe a week or ten days later for something to bring him or visit with him. As I was walking through the hallways of his dorm, there was this poster. History is filled with the record of men who would be gods, but only one God who would be man. This is the Jesus who humbled himself. And now we know why no one would ever invent the gospel. We can understand how every religion in this world has come into being. This consuming passion to please or appease some deity, gain their approval, avoid their wrath. We can understand it. No one would ever invent the gospel. Why? Who would create a humble God? It's an oxymoron. God is the highest, the best, and the most of everything. What God humbles himself. But this is all over the scriptures. It's not just here in Philippians chapter 2. We see it in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve, after their rebellion and their sin... Are hiding in the trees. They're afraid, they're naked, condemned, guilt, shame. And God comes into the garden looking for them. God pursues Adam and Eve in their sin. And after confronting them with the effects of the curse, there's a promise. There's a promise of a Redeemer. Jesus talks, or God talks about the seed of the woman. He says to the enemy, you will bruise his heel. He will crush your head, which happened at the cross. First promise of the Redeemer in the Bible. And what is surprising about this text, we love to ask our pastor trainers. Huh. There's been no repentance. Repentance. There's been no confession of their sin. There hasn't yet been the, even the first hint of any sense of responsibility for their choices and their actions, and our God is talking about redemption. Now put yourself in God's place in that moment in history. Adam and Eve are standing before you. What would you say? Would you say what God said? Huh. Huh. How long would it take before we? You knew the choices. <laughs> you made your bed, now you sleep in it. Somehow, in a way that we will never understand, even into eternity, God's mercy overwhelms his justice, and it provides a way of redemption. A God who humbles himself. Humbles himself by pursuing us in our sin when we would never, ever have come. Fully revealed in Jesus. This God who gives his own son for the lives of his enemies. Jesus humbles himself, coming as the lowest form of man, dying the lowest form of death. And you well remember one of the most beautiful invitations in our Bibles when Jesus says, Come to me, you who are weak and heavy, burdened. I will give you rest. Not inviting the righteous, the spiritual, the strong, broken, sinful, hurting people. You have need, you come. You come. I'm gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. We have a God who exalts himself in his humility, and the worship flows. We'll turn to chapter 4 and verse 2. I entreat Yoda and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What is happening as we come to this place in Paul's letter? After talking about these huge sweeping things, of the power and glory of the gospel a God who exalts himself in his humility going on to talk about the surpassing worthiness of Jesus how God heals us from our past so we are free to serve him in the gospel those two themes will be what we'll be focusing on this afternoon if you can join us I hope you do So, as Paul's coming to the end of his letter, does he say, Oh, that's right. I did want to make a comment about what's going on between these two ladies. I'm glad I remembered it before I finished my letter. Think that's what's going on? Absolutely not. There are two things that stimulated this Philippian letter one, this is a thank you note. You've given to missions, you've given to missionaries ministries, you receive thank-you notes. I I would wager you never received a thank-you note on the level of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. So he's thanking them for their partnership in the gospel. He also writes about these two ladies, and we do not know what happened with them. Obviously, it's, it's a personal issue. They're not debating whether Jesus was actually born of a virgin. The issue isn't, did he really rise from the dead? It's a personal thing that had happened. It's affecting their relationship with one another, and it's affecting the whole church. It's distracting them from giving themselves to the gospel. And Paul has a fascinating solution. Tell them to agree with each other. Hmm. Tell them to agree with each other. Why is this exhortation placed where it is in Paul's letter? If it's one of the things that prompted him, why is it in the fourth chapter? The placement is strategic. What will it take for Yodia and Syntyche to agree with each other and get this distraction from the gospel behind them and behind the church at Philippi so they're free to give themselves to the work of God around the world? Why is it placed here? What will, what will it take for Yodia and Syntyche to agree with each other about whatever has happened? They're going to have to humble themselves. Why does Paul put this after talking about the humility of the Lord Jesus? The one who will own the worship of the nations for all of eternity humbled himself. So you follow his example. He showed you how to do it. He lives in you to enable you to do it. This is the solution agree with each other. You realize we can't do this. Surely you know. This is not possible for us in the church in America for two reasons. One is our highest right is our rightness. It's the highest good, highest goal. We will do anything to preserve our rightness. When there's a conflict, a difficulty, we will sell anything to preserve and prove our rightness. We'll leave a marriage. Walk out of a friendship. We'll leave a church. because unity flowing from humility is not our highest good being right is our highest good that is the most valuable thing to us there's another reason it's because we're not like God when we worship we often sing about his holiness what is his holiness? Remember how God called Isaiah to the ministry in the year that King Uzziah died? I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated upon his throne. And Isaiah sees the angels around God's throne continually proclaiming his holiness and his glory. What is God's holiness? Well, we know it's purity, it's separation from sin. But it's its first definition is other. Their angels realize whatever they are, God is other than that. Whatever we are, God is other than that. God is high. He's lifted up. He's separate. He's unique in his person. We often sing, God, there is none like you. You're other. We worship you. Where do we see that mostly in our relationships with one another, in our churches, our marriages, our families? We see it here. We have a God who values mercy over justice. All of his attributes are always full all the time. That's not what I'm talking about. God is always just, he's always mercy, 100%, never in balance, always everything, all of everything at the same time. But God values mercy over justice. But because we're not like him, we value justice over mercy. We hold on to it. And especially when we're right about it. What will it take for Yodia and Sintiki to agree with each other? I have to come to the place where, as they say, whatever we're disagreeing about, the gospel is more important. You know, you, you know well when there's an issue in the church, uh, whether it's somebody threatening to leave or a disagreement that's strong that's affecting unity or a hurt that takes place, a disappointment, a sin against one another, all of a sudden, it's the central thing. It consumes every conversation, it consumes every prayer, it consumes every point of focus. It's all we can deal with. This is what Paul's talking to the church at Philippi about. This is a distraction. It's distracting you from what God's given you to do, to further the kingdom, the gospel. Put it down, agree with each other, and go on. our ministry overseas was just beginning leadership resources actually began as a one to one discipleship ministry and sometimes people say to me you know did you ever dream that this ministry would become what it is of course not we didn't begin a mission organization we began a one to one discipleship ministry and and then I was invited to minister to a group of missionaries overseas, and uh, that was in Ecuador. And I came home, and one of the staff members said to me, how was it, Bill? And I said, it was wonderful. I loved it, but I don't think I'll ever go overseas again. God has called us to minister in the church in North America. So that's, that's a sense of how good I am at discerning God's will. But... Um, Anyway, so we we were challenged by missionaries that we met there to make our ministry available to missions and missionaries, and uh, leaders that we got to know well who helped us said, "Your ministry is very encouraging. Missionaries need encouragement." So soon we were uh, on mission bases ministering to missionaries and pastors overseas. But, of course, finances were always a limitation. We were small. Well, about the same time, a businessman in the Chicago area, a very wealthy businessman, he had sold his latest business for several million dollars, he would become very disappointed in the last several churches that he had been a part of. And he decided to use part of this money to begin a new church. And he was going to do it right this time. And he was looking for the perfect pastor for his perfect church. And he met one of the leaders of our ministry. Leader, wow. Tall, handsome, sports hero, war hero, eloquent preacher, Good leader. He asked them to come and be the pastor of this new church. Well, because of our relationship, then they invited us to minister in the church and they liked our ministry. And not too long after that, one of the elders came and said, We'd like you to come and join our church and be a part of us. You will be our mission outreach. We will fund all of your staff. <laughs> You know what missionaries are like, always raising money. (laughs) Raising personal support is humiliating, it's endless, it's exhausting. There's some fear involved, and this was... And we will fund all of your projects overseas. Well, this was an answer to prayer beyond hope for our board and our staff, you know, that they wouldn't have to raise personal support anymore, that we wouldn't have to say no to invitations overseas because of finances. Wow, what an answer to prayer. And so I was concerned about the relationship between power and money and control. And then another of the elders came to me and said, we believe you should limit your ministry to like-minded churches. That was an intriguing statement. What's a like-minded church? You know? Well, they were very theologically precisely correct. But I started to think, what would Paul's ministry have looked like if he had limited himself to like-minded churches? Surely he never would have gone to Galatia, where they're going back to the Old Testament sacrifices as uh, a means of following the Lord Jesus, the legalism there. He wouldn't have gone to Colossae, where they're mixing the gospel with Greek philosophies. Of course he would have stayed a far away away from Corinth with a carnival atmosphere around spiritual gifts. What's a like-minded church? And I tried to communicate my concerns to our board and our staff, but they were so caught up in this hope, this answer, they couldn't hear anything else. And finally, I became so worn down, my inability to communicate or get through it, I said, if you feel this is what we need to do, you go ahead and do it. I can't do it. And I resigned. And I couldn't believe it. It was humiliating. I I never saw myself as a failure. I didn't realize how exhausted I was emotionally and spiritually and physically. And it was terrible. God did meet us there. It took several months for us to be healed. But uh, the best part of the story is everyone involved in that experience is still serving the Lord together today. We did get through it. But what did it take for us to deal with that? We had to agree with each other. The gospel, the ministry God's entrusted to us, is more important than any of us being right in this situation. And the truth is, none of us was right. We're all wrong in some way, on some level. That's the way it is in the body of Christ, you know. We're all wrong. It's just a matter of degree. None of us is right. We're all wrong. The gospel is so foundational in the ministry around the world that in order to walk with God as a church in the fulfillment of the gospel, to maintain the unity that God's given to us, to stand side by side with one mind, one heart, one purpose, this is what we're going to have to do continually. Continually. Agree with each other. What do we have to do to agree with each other? We need to continually humble ourselves. For some of you who've struggled with hurts and brokenness in relationships and failures in this way, as we have, I want to encourage you with this thought, this possibility. Why did Jesus humble himself To become the lowest form of man and die the lowest form of death. Why did he do that? He knew that was the only way to get to the gospel. His humility before his father and before you and me was the connection point to the gospel coming to this world so that we could be forgiven of our sins live in a relationship with the holy God and own the hope of heaven in our hearts. It's the only way to get there. And the next time you're in this situation where you just don't agree with a brother or sister about something or there's a hurt that separated you and your pride is so strong you want to just get up and walk away and be done with it all, remember this. Maybe God's at work in that platform for your life and for the gospel, providing an opportunity right now for the gospel to go forward, and the connection point between what happens in your heart and the furtherance of the gospel might be very well the same it was for the Lord Jesus. Humility. The gospel is far more important than our rightness. And God is making us like Jesus. And one of the places that will show up very early on is we will start to value mercy over justice the way he does and to live passionately and freely for that one purpose, the glory of God filling the earth as the waters cover the sea.